I would like to start by telling you a little bit about this bracelet. This was made by women in the slums of Kampala. Do you know about the movie Queen of Katwe? So that's in Uganda, in Kampala. So Katwe and the other slums. Uh, the women who made this, I will talk a little bit about one of them, Carol. Carol was married to a man from Sudan. So she went to Sudan with her husband to live there and her husband was killed in front of her. She was abused. And then she came back home to Uganda. And she had three children to take care of. She did not have a husband. And there were other women in her situation. So Carol and her friends, and when I talk about her friends, these are women who were either forced into prostitution or find themselves into that life because of circumstances. Uh, some of them have AIDS, and almost all of them have children to take care of. A lady from our church went to Uganda. Uh, she was the, she's part of the board, uh, the mission board that works with the women in Uganda. And she bought these things, and she brought it to the church. She said, we can give a donation so that the money that we collect will get back to these women in time for Mother's Day. And so when I wear this, for me, it's a symbol of hope. There are many carols out there. In Congo, it's mainly women who were raped during war in my Congo, um, who found themselves with HIV or with children. And so it's a way for me to remember. Sometimes I don't even say a big prayer like, Lord, remember Carol, but just to have it, it's a prayer for me. Just like when I wear the uh, I am N, um, I am a Christian for those who are persecuted in the Muslim world, it's a way for me to remember them and to know that in Jesus we have hope. Um, I'm grateful to be an African woman. And I'm grateful to be a Congolese woman uh, because of what I received, my roots, my heritage. I learned the value of family, community, hospitality, morality, resiliency in the face of hardship and even in the face of war. African women are beautiful. I'm not biased. <laughs> I know I'm biased. <laughs> and <clears throat> it's just when I see a sister, African or not, I know God created us beautiful. And then when I want to be more biased, I say African women are beautiful. Uh, my memories of Congo are full of laughter. So today I'm going to talk about a difficult topic, but <clears throat> if you go to Congo, you might lose your heart because it's a beautiful country. Um, there were a lot of laughter, family meals, time together. Um, it was really a, a wonderful time, and I will not trade it for anything. Community, um, this is my father and mother. They are now residents of heaven. They just made the home a wonderful place where we grew up just before war and all these things came. My childhood is a happy one, and I know it was made happy because they became followers of Jesus as soon as they got married. And that changed the dynamic of the family I grew up in. But Congo is also just a beautiful country, you know, nice landscape, things you can uh, 
Uh, you can enjoy. I, I love Congo because I was saved when I was 15 back home. The fellowship with God's people. Now, when we pray, it's like the, the preacher can preach for one hour. That's why I asked for the time. But anyway, the fellowship and just the time together where we, we enjoy one another and enjoy talking about the Lord. Even though sometimes it's mingled with sadness and difficulties, it's wonderful memories. And those memories and everything that I learned made me the person I am today. And I'm really very proud to be not only a Congolese, but most of all, a Christian woman. And uh, just to be a woman who follows Christ. Um, Congolese women have experienced all sorts of violence. That's just in particular, but in general, all over the world. Um, because there is sin, there is violence. And for some of them, it's a, a daily occurrence, something that happens every day, women are battered. Um, they experience difficulties either at home or outside. And when they have AIDS, they are ostracized. No one wants to talk with them. They think that if they touch them, they will have it. Um, for a lady, um, she, was, she got AIDS during war, and she has a daughter. Because she has a sister who lives in Canada who sends money for medicine, she doesn't look like somebody who has AIDS. When people don't know, she has friends. As soon as they discover that she has AIDS, she is like, okay, we don't want to get um, closer to you. For, for women who have experienced abuse in Congo, many of them are non-vocal. They don't talk about it. Um, in my case, I am from Congo Brazzaville. Um, I discovered their world by becoming one of them, a woman who was abused. Um, I knew of them. I knew of their experience. Occasionally, I prayed for them, but then I became one of them, and things changed. And I will share more about it as, um, as I go, about my experience. <clears throat> I have to say that Congo has a real sense of gender, work distribution. Men have things that they do, and women have things that they do. And I think in many cases, that's me. There is an imbalance of uh, the distribution of work. It's true. Like, let's, if we take the example of women in the villages, okay, men go and cut the big trees because they are heavy and stuff. And then they will, with a big machete, they will cut the big uh, weeds that are there. Mostly that's it. And then women, well, they come, they cut all the little weeds they plant, they weed in between, they harvest, they cook the food, they sell the food. So I know that the men do those big work, but there is, it's not balanced. Um, so anyway, <laughs> like when they come from the, from the garden, or from what we call the plantation, from the fields, men and women have been working hard. The men will come home, they'll wait for the women to go fetch the water, warm the water, and uh, like in my village, it's a little chilly, not as cold as here. Uh, and uh, they will take their shower, or bath shower, whatever you call it, and then socialize and wait. The women will go fetch the water, warm the water, cook the food, take care of the children, 
uh, feed the family, make sure everybody is settled, clean up the dishes and everything that needs to be done, then they can take a shower and go rest. So that's a lot of work. Uh, sorry. When we see these women, all the things that they do. And <laughs> during war, my, my brothers, they helped us. Like hauling water was something that was very hard. And so they will come and they will carry the, the firewood. It was heavy. We'll have baskets and put it on our head. That's why all this hair is gone because the basket has to stay here for you to be able to carry it. And then you have these woods that are longer than you and they're so heavy. And so you carry them. My brothers will come and put the wood on their heads. And people made fun of them. They were doing women's work. And they were PhDs. And I'm like, don't worry about that. Anyway. <laughs> but it really helped us to have them come work alongside us and help us in the heavy work that we did. Because we, became, we all became peasants. We all, all became villagers when we were there during war. Um, and even though people made fun of them, they still did it. They continued to help us. Um, so this gender distribution of work sometimes shapes the way well, used to shape the way girls and, women, uh, and, and boys will go to school. Young men growing up, they were encouraged to go to school and go as far as they can go. And young women, well, get some schooling. That's really good because you need to take care of children. You need to teach them what to do and so on. Um, I remember my first marriage proposal. So today you're not going to hear things about the book. You're going to hear other things. So there was this young man. He was really Cute, very handsome, nice. Uh, I could see that he had some money. Um, he came with his uh, aunt, who was my, my great-aunt, and other people. Now, when marriage happened, they don't talk to you, the person who's interested. They talk to the parents. So the adults sat together, and uh, they talked. For my parents, the fact that they had two unmarried daughters who were over 20, this was a rare opportunity. I mean, it was a shame by 18, even earlier, you should be married at that time. And here we were, the two of us, not married, and there was this guy who came and who had all the, what you're looking for, you know, the looks and uh, a, a great job. He lived in uh, the second largest city in, in Congo. He had everything but Christ. And so he came to our house, and he wanted to marry me. Apparently, I was cute. <laughs> That's something. Well, my husband will say yes. So anyway, uh, he came and he talked. My father told him, he said, OK, Medin will have the last say in this decision. So let's take a break. I'm going to ask her. He came to me, he said, Medin, you heard what that man said. I think a man who's bringing televisions and TV at that time, that was a luxury. We didn't even have a TV. So he said, a man who's bringing TVs and money and all that material things, I don't think he will value you as a human being. 
And I say, thank you so much because I'm not ready to get married and I didn't want to do it, but I wanted to hear what you had to say. So of course I went back there, I said, no, um, I don't think I want to get married. I really want to go to school. School? I was already at the university. The man is like, oh no, if I marry her, she's not going to school. She's going to take care of kids. So that was the end of it. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's like, you go to school as much as you can, and then, hi Lauren, <laughs> and then, well, you get married, and you take care of the children, um, especially that the man will pay the bride price. We'll talk about the bride price also, because it gives men power over women. It's like, okay, I paid this, then you do what I have to do. Anyway, we'll come back to that. My father was different. He believed, and I think he was different because of Christ in his life. He believed in equal opportunities for men and women. Uh, many did not have the same fortune and found themselves married to men they did not like or sometimes to men they did not know. Like in my case, I never met that man and it was the first time I saw him and I was like, no. I have to say also, I used to, use, I used to read romance novels you know, growing up. So my mind of romance was really skewed. It was not the Congolese way, you know. And like when I used to pray for a husband, I would say, Lord, please give me a Congolese man with blue eyes. Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so Craig says, well, yes, God gave me a man with blue eyes, but who's not Congolese? That's just because my mind was weird. Anyway, um, <laughs> So when women married in Congo, the men will see them as an asset. Do you have children? You are beautiful so they can put you out there and say, my wife is this. You have to know how to cook. Oh, that's very important. My mom always got all the flowery words. My dad too, because they would say, oh, Jacques, your wife can cook. And that was an asset. Um, and it's, not, it's very different from what happens in the West. Even though things are changing, in the villages we still have that idea of marriage. When my parents were children, actually a baby will be born, somebody will come and say, oh, you had a girl, I have a boy. So they're going to get married. And they, go, they put like a bead or something and your fate is already there, set for you. Um, thank God things have changed. <laughs> um, when someone marries you because of what you are going to bring to the person <clears throat> when they marry you and they've paid a lot of money, money for that, physical abuse can be the result if you do not do exactly what they want you to do. Um, physical abuse is everywhere. Men and women experience that and Congo Brazzaville is no difference. Um, when people get married in Congo, the, this is my brother's wedding, Emmanuel. The, um, as you can see, my father is not there. He already went to heaven. And then after the wedding, uh, a few years after that, my mom went to heaven. But <clears throat> when you get married, you pay the bride price. That's what the, the man's family do. And the more educated or the more beautiful is the girl, the more money you pay. I'm not going to tell you what they asked Craig to pay. That was outrageous. They were like, oh, Jacques, 
Your daughter is marrying a white man? An American? Money goes in trees in America. So, of course, 800,000 CFA or a million. And my father's like, no, Medin is not for sale. But I mean, <laughs> the more educated you are, the more money the person pays. If they pay that money to marry you, you locked in, um, in, in a type of, I mean, when the husband loves you, it's different. It's a wonderful thing. It's just tradition, and you go back and forth and talk about it. Sometimes they say, okay, a wedding is something that's going to go on for a long time, so you can pay us as you go. But if he marries you and pays a lot of money and he's not the type of person who likes you, your life can go one way or the other. It can become hell. Uh, so a lot of men think that they are entitled to their wife's body and soul and mind. <clears throat> and if the wife doesn't cooperate, well, they remind them, I paid a hectic sum of money to marry you. And if she, she still doesn't co cooperate, well, then they mistreat them. They beat them. They abuse them. They withdraw love or sexual intimacy. And the different things, they go on and on. Now, I need to introduce a caveat. Just say that men are also abused. Pastor Elisee, he's a pastor. His wife is strong. She's really strong. And the day he, she beat him outside in front of his parishioner, that was a shame, a big shame that he still carries in his heart. Because it's a shame for a man to be beaten. That's one thing. My mother had an aunt who was very strong. And so she married, I think, three, three times. It was very rare for that time. But when her husband was not doing, I mean, he was abusing her, she would say, hey, I know I'm the wife here, but no, I'm not going to take it. And she would beat them until the husband would ask for help. And the next day, they pack up and they go. But Pastor Eliezer, divorce is not, in, in, that, in that church in Congo, you can't divorce. If you divorce, you lose your, uh, your ministry. And he loves his wife. And so it's hard for him to be beaten outside, you know, by his wife. So it happens um, on both sides. One group that experience abuse um, are orphans. If the family loves you, like your sister's daughter or, you know, your brother's son or something like that, it's fine. They will take you in as family. But if you are, well, if you end up with relatives who are not close, who are a little distant, and they don't like you, you can become the servant of the family. And that's hard. And for girls, all sorts of abuse, sexual, physical, um, you do all of the work. We lived in, uh, in Pointe Noire. Pointe Noire is the second largest city. And so when we go to the village, for a holiday or when my dad will have a vacation, people used to consider us middle class. Can you believe that? I was like, no way. We didn't have much. But anyway, compared to the people who lived in the village, we were clean. My mom, she didn't go to school much. I mean, she could read her Bible, but that's it. She just learned from missionaries how to sew, how to take care of your family, how to cook and all these things. 
Although my dad usually say, Antoinette, I taught you how to cook. My dad started working as a cook to a white uh, colonizer, French. And so he taught my, my mom some things to cook. But when we would go, there was always this young woman. I will see when people were coming from the fields, we will come from the fields and she was singing a song. She was always doing something, carrying the heaviest load. Um, her clothes were all tattered and she, something was wrong with her. So as a teenager, I asked, I said, what's wrong with her? And people say, oh, she's retarded. Really? She didn't look like that. But then I didn't know what to do. Every year I saw that girl, she was growing up and she was doing the same thing. Even when we will pass by the house, she was the one washing the dishes or uh, cooking and so on. And then I kind of forgot about her. One day, a long time, I was now a student at the university, I started to remember the song she used to sing. And the song says, those who grew up with me are saved. I do not have a savior. Because of hardship and hunger, I left school. I do not have a savior. I am an orphan. I am an orphan. I've been dumped, discarded. I do not have a savior. It's like the Lord was speaking to me and said, Medin, that girl was not retarded. That girl was abused. It just hit me right in here. I, I don't know what happened to her, but I know that when we cry out to God in whatever situation we are, God hears our prayers. And I trust that somehow the Lord reached out to that girl to help her. So orphans, you're vulnerable. Widows, you are vulnerable. Um, depending, from, depending from what tribe you are in Congo, things can change. But in general, the, the gist is the same, the things that you, you, you see. Basically, there are two solutions. Well, I'll say three. Um, when your husband dies, you marry your, husband's, your dead husband's brother. That sounds familiar somewhere in the Bible? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Well, so that all the material possessions and the money and the pension will stay in the family. So my father, Papa Jacques, um, his brother died. He was a Christian. Everybody was expecting him to marry his brother's wife. Because polygamy exists in Congo. When you get married, if you get married to a Congolese, you have to specify, I am going for monogamy or I'm going for polygamy. And so my father was not thinking about polygamy. And he said, no, I can't marry her. They didn't understand that. Well, what do you do as a Christian? You know, there is tradition. You have uh, responsibilities. You have things you have to fulfill. Okay, do you become a polygamous? Do you break tradition? Well, we're going to come back to that. In other cases, when the husband didn't leave, uh, well, the dead person, the dead man didn't leave a, uh, uh, a brother, you marry the nephew. So, when my father died, oh, 
I went too far. When my father died, his nephew suggested that he was going to marry my mom. Come on. Ah, <laughs> uh, I will tell you about it also soon. I don't know if you've heard uh, what's happening in Kenya. There is a group of women in a tribe in Kenya. They are now coming forward and denouncing um, one of the practices that are done. They call it the cleansing of the widow. When your husband dies, they go and find a man who will come and have sex with you unprotected. If there is no one in the family who says yes, they will go and find any drunkard, any man they find in the street to come and have sex with you. They say, if you don't do that, then the demons will come into your family. Your husband is not there to protect you. One of your children will die. So for these women, it's like rape. And for these women, the consequences are AIDS, unwanted pregnancy, and more poverty. Because the person who has sex with you is not obligated to marry you. And so in Kenya, they are fighting against this tradition and saying, no, of course, men wanted to, want the tradition to continue. But it's just to say there are traditions, like in Congo, if your husband die, you are not supposed to shower and you have to leave your, your hair just without taking care of it and just be dirty between, I don't know, six months to a year, depending on tribes. I remember we told my mom, say, you know where he is. No one will come into this house and force you to do anything. You are free. You can, you know, it's part of our tradition to remember your spouse, where in the morning you really take the time to cry and pray and think, and that's okay. And that go, I think for my mom, it went for, I don't know, three months, four months, and then people come and stay with you. It's wonderful. They cry with you. They support you. They, they cook the food for you and so on. And then you say, okay, thank you. And then you let them go. That's wonderful. But when they force you, you have to walk on your, knee, uh, walk on your knees. Uh, you have to uh, not shower, not eat at certain times. That is wrong because the person is gone and there is nothing you can do. So, that's one thing. The other thing is when the husband dies, your hus the dead husband's family, they put you out of the house. They take everything. And they don't care whatever happens to you or your children. That's not their problem. Basically, they're putting you out there to become poor and go do whatever you want. In a few cases, which is now happening more and more, the dead husband has a strong family ethic and they will uphold the law. Because we have a law in Congo, it says that the widow is supposed to stay in the house and you know, get the pension and all these things. So it really depends. Now, in this season of the hashtag Me Too, of course, we're talking about violence against women, uh, it's appropriate to talk about sexual harassment and rape. I believe sexual harassment in all its form demeans those who are subjected to it, men or women. Um, Congolese women have been victims of sexual harassment for a long time. And because it's taboo, people don't talk about it very much, uh, the practice still goes on. I remember my, my, uh, my cousin,
cousin, my father's niece, she got married. And she usually when you get married, you take your sister, your little sister with you. She took her little sister and uh, started a family and had a child or two. And then one day she went on a holiday and left her little sister there, who had become a beautiful teenager, with her husband uh, to cook for the husband and care for the husband. When she came back, this girl has been raped. My, we were all very upset because she was badly raped by that man. So these are things that happen. And then it was just hush-hush in the family. And no one took any action against that man. And that is wrong, very wrong. It's one thing to be upset, but I think we need to take the upset to the next level where you take a step and do something. Um, harassment happens in different forms, OK? When I was 12, apparently I was cute, a teenager, 12 years old. And in Congo, when you go to school, you have to have school uniforms. So you go to a tailor, you make them do your school uniform, and then you get it. Bad news for me, the only tailor closer to home was a man. We all heard stories of male tailors. When you get there, they had the evil fitting room. We heard things happening there. I was like, oh, OK, I can, I can outwit this man. So I told my dad, I said, oh, when you go to work, can, you stop with, can we stop by the tailor, you and me? He said, sure, we can do that. I already bought the material. So I went with my father. I was wearing my uh, uh, shorts, and I was ready. So we got there. The man fitted me and so on, and he is like, OK. You can come back on Friday. He was not happy. I was like, thank you, God. So <laughs> I went. At that time, I was not a Christian like I have not given my heart to Jesus yet. I was still living on my parents' faith because their faith was very strong. So on Friday, I was like, well, let me take the time now as I go to the market to stop by the guy, just grab my things, and then go. I went there, stopped by, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I need to do some more fittings. I was like, uh-oh, there comes trouble. So I started to think. It was in the morning, around 9. There was no one. There was nobody in, outside in the court. I was 12. I tried to think of anything. Nothing came to mind. I said, all right. So I went in there. Of course, he measured me. And of course, he touched me inappropriately. I jumped out. and came outside, but I could see by his smug face that he had won. Yeah, Infortun unfortunately, as early as middle school, girls are already prey to whomever is watching out there. And it's sad because you don't feel safe and you wonder, What's going on? I learned that day that my father, my wonderful and respectable father, could not always protect me. But I also knew that God will. Even though I had not given myself fully to him, I knew he was there and he was looking and he did not approve of that man. I didn't like that man, I have to say. And I didn't go to him, and I always avoided that, that place. And I never talked to anyone about it. 
because it was a shame. If I had spoken to my father, that man would have received something. But I was a shame. And when you grow up in a culture of shame and honor, you don't talk. Things become taboo and the cycle continues of abuse. Now, it doesn't happen only to 12 years old. It happens to university students, especially university students. Uh, Justine was a student at the university. And our university, our part of the university was called the, um, the Empire of Evil, l'Empire du Mal. Uh, it was the history section, Roman language section. And, but these practices, they happened in all the sections of the university. Like professors will want to really have sex with you, and then if you say yes, they will give you grades, good grades. So Justine was a student, and she never received her, you know, her homework, her quizzes, and anything. The professor just kept everything. And then one day, towards the end of the semester, he said, okay, Justine, you need to come to my house. Now, I'm commending you. You have to come to my house to get all your quizzes, you know? If not, you will have to fail this semester, this term. She knew what it meant. She cried out, she said, God, you need to help me here. I need to come up with something that will help me. And so she thought and thought, and one day she went to the professor's house. And she said, sir, I am so glad you asked me to come here. I know that you have something in mind, and I need just to tell you that, you know, my father is a very nice person. So he will not mind for you and me getting married. So as, you know, as soon as you want, you can go talk to my father and uh, <laughs> he, will, he will agree and we can get married. Well, the professor was like, oops, he was caught off guard. He didn't know what to do. And of course he was married. And so he threw the, the, the quizzes and everything at Justine and uh, Justine was saved. Uh, Professor Ngenge was one of my professors, change his name. Uh, he, <laughs> I guess I caught his high. That was bad at the beginning of the semester. And so I was really nervous. I was like, not again, Lord, not this thing. I, I, I don't want that. I dressed really weird and old clothes and things like that. So I won't be noticed, but I was noticed. I'm like, this is bad. And then I started to notice that, you know, he walked by where I, I lived. I was like, oh, it's getting bad. Every time I'll go to class, I lived far. I didn't always have money to get the bus, so I'll come to class late. The class has started. As soon as I'll come to class, he will stop, and he will talk about Medine, like really bad. I was like, oh, Lord, this is not good. So most of the times, the professor will wait at the oral exam section because that's easy. Because when we are writing our exam, they can give you bad grades, increases, and so on. But then come the big midterm and final exam, and then you work hard. You can unbalance that. And then there were always oral exams, the dreaded oral exams. And during the oral exams, thank God, the professor did not have the right. He didn't know who was going in what list. He will give the grades because it was blind grading. And the administration will come up with a list and say, oh, okay, these people, they passed the class, okay. And then they'll have the list because Professor Ngenge and another professor, they were teaching, like, teaching two sections of the class. One of them will take the first part, the other one will take the second part. Tell me if I'm going too far. Okay. Uh, okay. 
And so Professor Ngenge will, um, will wait for me. He was waiting for me. And so <laughs> when we will be at, uh, let's say, the oral exams are coming out, if he is going to take the first list, my name was always the first on the last, on the second list. If he's taking the second list, my name was always the last on the first list, Musunga. So he was in the middle. So he never had me. And so I finished the university and went to France. And one day, with some of the other students in uh, one of the metro in France, in Paris, we saw him. And we were like, hi, Professor Ngenge. He came to us and talked to us. And he said, Musunga, your God is alive. I will never forget that. Praise Jesus. Musunga, your God is alive. Okay, I will try to uh, <laughs> go a little quicker, but things happen. They happen in the church, okay? Rosie was uh, a wonderful Christian lady. Well, there's something happened to Julianne. Rosie was a wonderful Christian lady who was going to the choir. And the person in charge of the choir at the church made sure that every sister was taken home by a brother so that nothing will happen to them because 7.30 was already late. Eight was really dark. And so there were always this uh, gentleman who would take Rosie home and it was really fine. Until one day, the gentleman was sick. He was an older gentleman. There was a young man there who kind of came to choir two, three times. And he said, oh, I'll take Rosie. She said, okay. So after the, after the choir, the rehearsal, he took Rosie home and he said, oh, my, my house is just, you know, on, your, on the way to your house. I need to pick something from my room. Could we stop by? She said, okay. Because she could see there were people outside, women pounding cassava, children laughing and so on. Um, there was the light outside. She said, okay, I'm safe. So she came and started to talk to the women. She was tired, you know, after a day of school and then rehearsal, she was tired. And the young man was like, Rosie, why don't you sit? I mean, you know, usually when uh, a boy starts to become a, a man, they will make a room and the opening will be towards the kitchen so that, you know, he has a privacy, but the parents will still keep an eye on what's going on there. And so his room, the door was towards the kitchen. The kitchen is outside. Women just cook outside on charcoal. And so he's like, you can sit. You look like you're tired. She said, okay, uh, no, I'm fine. And the ladies were like, well, if you're tired, you can sit. So she said, well, what's wrong? I can just sit, it's okay. She went in the room and sat the doors open. The young man picked something and suddenly he closed the door, he locked the door, he raped that girl with the mother and the other women knocking at the door saying, release her, release her, and he didn't. Rosie lived in shame and she said, I felt dirty, I felt guilty. If only I have stayed outside. But she didn't have a way to know that this is something that was going to happen. Um, it was hard. And only Jesus removed the shame in her life. And as you can see, God gave her a wonderful husband and she is a happy person today. I'm not going to talk about war because in war it's horrible. It's gang rape, things that we saw, the kind of things that happened. But what is our response when things like this happened? We can have different responses. Uh, the women will pray. Prayer always helps. 
to whoever God they have. Uh, others sacrifice their own safety for their children and for any other members of the family. Some fight back, like Madame Jacques' aunt. And some women just bury themselves in indifference, anger, bitterness, and don't do anything. Like Tamar in the Bible. You know the story of Tamar. She was one of King David's daughters. She was beautiful. The Bible says she was beautiful. And she was raped by her half-brother, Amnon. She proposed to him. She said, let's marry, and there will be no shame. He said, no, and kind of say, out of here. I don't want you anymore. Well, what did she do? She spent her life in the house of her brother. Now, Tamar was a daughter of the king, and I know what happened to her was wrong. Uh, even though she was raped, she was a moral virgin. And that's one thing that we do not say too much. You are a victim of something. You're, somebody comes and takes advantage of you. You are a moral virgin. It's something that was forced upon you. So Tamar was a moral virgin, like many women who are raped. Uh, despite what happened to her, um, she could have found a husband. There were probably people who would have married her just to have ties with the royal family. Oh, because she was a beautiful woman. She knew how to cook because the brother asked her to come and cook. I mean, there were many qualities in her life, the Bible doesn't tell us, that would have made her a, a wonderful wife and uh, mother and companion and friend and partner and so on. Um, but she decided to hide. And I don't know, but probably she spent her life in shame, guilt, and bitterness. We cannot control what is done to us. We can control our response to violence. We can stand up against the perpetrators one way or another. Reese Taylor, everybody's talking about her. She was gang raped in 1944. She experienced deep woundedness, but never gave up on her family, her community, or herself, for that matter. S many Congolese women pick up themselves and forge ahead into a better life. And even though they cry out in pain for killed husbands, sons, raped daughters, abandoned babies, mistreated children, and the list goes on, they pick up themselves and go on. John 7, how did Jesus respond to this? John 7 tells the story of the woman caught in adultery. These people bring that woman and they say, oh, she needs to be stoned, but they're missing one person. The man is not there. Adultery involves two people. Jesus says, okay, if you, uh, you have no sin, you can be the first one to throw the stone. And no one did. And he forgave her. God forgives us for who we are. I don't like violence. I would like to see laws in Congo changed or in, in other countries to protect women and men. Uh, especially when violence is directed to our most vulnerable self. I would like to see these things changed. I pray, God, that the leaders in the church will really be totally committed to Jesus, that the change will come, that the vulnerable people who come into the church will be protected as a result. But in the meantime, I say to my sisters, be strong, stand up, lean on God, and go forward. 
love, live, and know that you are not alone in your struggles because Jesus is always with you. Be smart in dealing with relatives, you know, male relatives, male friends of whoever is there. Stand up for what you believe and for your rights because you are beautiful. We are beautiful. Mephibosheth, remember him? He was, I will say, ugly in our sides. Maybe he was beautiful of face, but he was a uh, cripple on both legs. Yet he ate at the king's table, not because of his own merit, no, because of grace. He didn't look at himself and say, you know what, I'm crippled, I, I can't do that. Oh no, he didn't do that. And he's an example to us. He received the gift and was blessed by the gift. We can look at ourselves and say we are ugly, but God is giving us a gift to be daughters and sons of the king. And we receive the gift, say thank you Jesus, and we live as children of God. As long as there is sin in this world, there will be violence. The question is, what do we do with it? By we, I mean you and me, Christ followers. What do we do? Probably the answer is not violence. We're not going to respond to violence by violence. You're right, like, like that young man came to me and said, your brother went out with my sister. I'm going to rape you. No, we're not responding like that. I didn't want to see that man, and I ran away from him all my life. <laughs> um, no, we respond like Proverbs 15. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but we stand up. We are not marching tools of anyone. No, God has, God has not given us a, a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. And that's so important. Uh, we are called to pray for our oppressors. I don't have time to go into all these things, but just some ideas. Our oppressors, persecutors, we're called to bless them. Our strength comes from God who sees all and helps us. Just to close, I'm gonna finish by telling you uh, my story. I was married in Congo. Um, I had this man who was kind of stalking me in a sense. We met in uh, mid, uh, middle school and he was like, Medina, I like you, I want to have sex with you. I said, nope, I'm from a Christian family, it's not gonna happen. We went to high school, he's like, Medina, I still like you. I said, well, I'm sorry, I'm still a Christian. I am even more of a Christian than I was in middle school. We went to the university, he said, well, you know, I became a Christian, I had a dream, and God said, you're my wife. I said, wow, great. Now let's pray that God will speak to me. So, I mean, <laughs> we went on and on like that. And then I went to France, he went to Belgium, and I forgot about him. And then I came back to Congo. I was still not married. I was over 30. People called me cursed. I was tired. <laughs> I was like, oh, anyone who comes, Lord, I'm so tired. And so this man comes back in my life. I didn't know what has happened to him during all these times. And he said, Medin, I really want to marry you. I said, wow, you are persistent. Let me think about it. <laughs> A sister told me, said, Medin, there are kind of warning signs. I don't know who this guy is. I haven't seen him at the church. I said, oh, come on, forget about it. She said, Medin, you cannot wear shoes that are not your size. We usually talk in, uh, I say that, uh, hi, Rose. <laughs> We usually talk in uh, uh, metaphors. You cannot wear shoes that are not your size. It will hurt. I say, it's better to have wrong shoes than walk with my feet. They will hurt. She said, 
listen, you have blisters. Anyway, I didn't want to listen to her. So I got married. I didn't know one thing. I didn't know that man was already married. So that was a bigamy. I didn't know that man was a drunk. And actually, he forced someone. His nephew was in love with a girl from my tribe. And he said to her, because she will see him every time come and brag, say, this is Medin's money. I was working. He was not working. I'm using it to drink. And he would drink. And they would drink and eat and be really merry. And he would take chewing gum. Oh, he would take garlic first. I didn't even know all of this. And he would eat garlic to remove the smell of wine. And then he would use chewing gum. And he would look at the girl and say, if ever you tell Medin, my nephew is not going to marry you. And I didn't know anything until I got married and I, I got a couple of months, three months into the marriage, my life changed, became hell. I was physically abused, emotionally abused, verbally abused. It was so hard. I was like, Lord, I guess I did a mistake. I was a fool, but I was an honest fool. Could you help me please, Lord? I didn't know what to do. I did not talk to anyone. The same rule of silence. Until one day, he was so mad that he just strangled me. I couldn't breathe. Early in the morning, I mean, you are a pregnant woman. You need to eat something in the morning. Instead of eating, I was being choked to death. And I was trying to breathe. And thank God, someone was passing by our street and said, Oh, Madame Medine lives here. I'm like, thank you, God probably one of my students, but he heard the name Medin and dropped me. I was like, are you going to kill me? Are you crazy? He said, shut up. I said, no, because it's the only way. I felt like I have to speak up. So I went to see my friend, Julienne. As she massaged me, I said, this is what's been happening to me. Julienne was safe for me. She was abused. I was the one helping her before I got married. And so I told her, I said, you know, this man says that I'm stupid, I'm a prostitute. She said, wait a minute. Stupid? Say that again. Do you have a PhD or not? You know, African <laughs> woman, ready to talk? I said, uh, yeah. She said, so, why is that stupid? He's stupid because he has a PhD. You are not stupid. You're a good woman. You are a beautiful creature of the Lord. Prostitute? I thought he's your first man. Didn't you tell me that? I said, yeah, she's my best friend. I said, yes. So you're not a prostitute? I said, yes. It's like a light bulb came up. I said, yes. She said, Medin, you are a child of God. It's like my identity was being grounded again. I walk home that day a new person, not bound with silence. And that man told me, say, I will know that I have hurt you when you find yourself in the hospital with one arm missing or one leg missing. I said, don't worry. I said, Lord, bring something here. Help me, please, Jesus, because I know who I am. I am your child. And you know what he brought? He brought war. <laughs> but that's what saved me. So anyway, we are God's people. Jesus calls us to forgive and pray for our enemies. Jesus calls us to stand for who we are and what we believe. And Jesus stood up for what was right. That got him killed. We stand up for what is right. He will walk with us whichever road it is.
Thank you.